Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So uh, Leviticus chapter 17, we're actually going to do both 17 and 18 this morning. And, and as I was preparing it, I, I kind of, I don't always put titles on, on messages, but I did for this one. It's called One Place, and that's one place uh, to worship the Lord, You'll, as we'll see as we go through it. One atonement, that'd be one atonement for sin. And then one authority, and that's one authority for life. And I'll explain that as we go through uh, these chapters. But we're going to pick it up here in verse 1 of chapter 17. And if you want to follow along, that'd be great. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, to his sons, and to all the children of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox or a lamb or goat in the camp, or who kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, the guilt of bloodshed shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people to the end that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they offer in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting to the priest and offer them as peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and burn the fat for a sweet aroma to the Lord. They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot. This shall be a statue forever for them throughout their generations. Also you shall say to them, Whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. So what's going on here? The tabernacle has now been uh, erected. It's in there. You know, the children of Israel are traveling through the wilderness and they have the tabernacle. It's a portable place to worship the Lord. It's, it's where the Lord's presence is among them. And now that it's been erected, now that it's been consecrated, the children of Israel were to bring the blood and the fat of their sacrificed animals to one place, to the tabernacle, and specifically to the door of the tabernacle. And of course the priests then would take it and offer it on the altar on behalf of the offerer. Now animal sacrifice was not unique to the children of Israel. It was common among the pagan nations around them. But what the Lord is teaching them is they were only to offer their sacrifices to him alone. Because if you notice, as we went through all those verses that I read, it's the words to the Lord, it's mentioned five times in Scripture. And I've got the verses there if you want to look at that, but you don't need to. Um, take my word for it. You can count them later. Um, God had prescribed one place for sacrifices to be offered, and that would be the tabernacle. Now later, the temple is going to be built, and then that will be the place where they are, Jerusalem's to meet, the, you know, the males, all the males are to meet twice a year, and there's different times that the children of Israel are to go to the temple to offer their sacrifices to the Lord. Um, why is that so important? Why couldn't they just offer it anywhere? Well, if you've been following along as we've been going through Leviticus, the tabernacle and all its furnishings, even the furniture in the tabernacle, the brazen altar, the sacrifice animals themselves, the priest himself, 
All of those things we find out in Hebrews were copies and shadows of, and they pointed to Christ Jesus. Even the door of the tabernacle, in fact, Jesus said in John 10, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So the Lord God is preparing the children of Israel to worship at one place. And that place is a picture of Jesus Christ. God has prescribed one person to whom uh, our worship is to be directed to, and it's his son, Christ Jesus. Now, if you notice, he mentions in verse 7 that they're no more to offer sacrifices to their demons, which they had evidently done. Um, you think about it. They were in Egypt for 400 years, and there was, a, there was the influence of the pagan uh, worship of the, all the different deities, um, the, the little idols or the little gods, I should say, that Egypt worshipped. They were, for 400 years, that was an influence among the children of Israel. When they left Egypt, we find out that there was a mixed multitude of people that went with them. And they probably, some of them, brought their idols along with them. And of course, late early, or later on, they're in, uh, we've already covered that when we were in Exodus, but the children of Israel there, they, Moses goes up on the Mount Sinai to, you know, he's gone for 40 days, and what do they do? They convince Aaron to build a golden, to create a golden calf so that they can worship. Uh, so they were involved in idol worship. Many generations later, the children of Israel, now the tabernacle is no longer, you know, now it's the temple. They're there to go to the temple. And uh, after Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam the king of, of, of Israel. And at that point, there's a, uh, a war, of, you know, a rebellion, basically. And Jeroboam uh, becomes the king of the ten northern tribes of Israel. And, uh, and so he's up in the north. Rehoboam's got Judah and half the tribe of Benjamin down in the south. And uh, Jeroboam comes up with this idea. He doesn't want people to go down to Jerusalem to worship the Lord there because it's like if they keep going down there, their heart's going to be kind of pulled towards Rehoboam and the rest of Israel. So he comes up with this idea and he creates a calf for them to worship up in northern, up in, uh, up in Samaria, up in the, in the northern area there in Dan, tribe of Dan. And, uh, and so he starts doing that. And so now the, now the children of Israel are starting to get involved in worshiping idols. And I've said this many times before. You guys know it. An idol is anything that is put before you in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It can be a thing. It can even be a person. Paul addresses idolatry in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 19 in he says, what am I saying, that, it, that an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? And, and it's implied, no, really not. But he says in verse 20, rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. The Bible teaches that there's a demonic influence behind idolatry. An idol is really nothing, but there's a demonic influence behind idolatry. The worship of the idols. You see, the, demo, uh, the demon's goal or the demonic goal is basically to destroy any work of the Lord. And so demons, they don't care if you're a worshiper. They don't care if you're, they don't even care if you acknowledge that they exist. They don't care if you worship them or not. They just want you to worship anything but the Lord Jesus Christ. And so anything that's idolatry, there's a, there's a demonic influence behind it. You know, I think about this. 
here we have this one place and, and it's a picture of Jesus Christ. You know, he's the one person. There's salvation through no other name than, the Jesus, than Jesus Christ. And yet there's people today, and you probably know them, that say, hey, there's many paths to heaven. There's many roads that lead to God. Jesus is just one of many. And those people typically, if you share their faith, they're like, hey, it's, I'm glad it's working for you, but keep your faith to yourself. See, what's going on here is rather than worshiping God and his son, Jesus Christ, their worship, their, those guys that say, hey, there's many paths, who are they really worshiping? I bet you in the majority of those situations, they're, it's basically they don't want to follow God's path. They don't want to worship Jesus Christ. So they want to worship what they want to worship. And so ideally, they're worshiping themselves. They've made themselves idols that they're worshiping. They want to worship as they see fit. Now, in Leviticus 17, as we see there, the tabernacle, it was a physical place. You know, there's some religions today that place a lot of emphasis on where physically worship is to take place. But there's others that say, hey, I can worship God out on the golf course. I can worship God out in the forest. Or I can worship God in my own home. I, don't, I really don't need to go to a building. I don't need to go to where church is. Or, you know, I can watch or listen to uh, teachings online. Boy, there's a lot of them out there now. You know, I can watch TV or I can, I can listen to some good podcasts or whatever it is. But there's a problem with that thinking and with that habit because it does become a habit. You see, we still need to worship where Christ is. We still need to worship where the body of Christ is because you and I, we're all members of the body of Christ. You're just one part, just like I'm just one part of the body of Christ. And so we need to meet together where the body of Christ meets, wherever that is. Uh, the local body of Christ is where we should be meeting. You know, it's made up of different uh, different members. Just look around the room, we're, we're very different. We have different gifts. We have different callings. We're to gather together to encourage each other. We're even here to be accountable to one another. And it's an opportunity for us to serve one another. And basically what it boils down to is it's a place to grow. Now, Tim is a rock hound. My wife's a rock hound and, and uh, they both have rock tumblers. And I've shared, maybe you, you might've heard this, uh, this illustration before, but you know, this church is just like a rock tumbler. You know, you get these rocks and, uh, you know, before you put these rocks on the rock tumbler, they're kind of ugly, you know, they've got sharp edges, they're kind of dull, they're just, you know, you know there's potential there, but they don't look that good. And so you throw them into a tumbler, you add some water, a little bit of abrasive, you turn it on and you let it run for a long time. I mean, a long time, depending on the size of your tumbler, it could be weeks, could be months, you know. Um, Tim, by the way, he's got these tumblers, these ones that he does it like in a couple days or a week or something like that, but those are big, big guys that he's got. But, you know, church is like a rock tumbler because, you know, think about it. You come to church and go, man, that person rubs me the wrong way. <laughs> man, they're very abrasive. And yeah, that, that's true. They probably are. Uh, you probably are as well. But when you mix those rocks with the water of the word and submission to the work of the Holy Spirit and you allow time and you start just interacting with one another, the result of that is beautiful polished stones. What happens a lot of times is people go, I don't like this rock tumbler. 
that rock tumbler over there looks better. Those stones look nicer, so I'm going to go over to that tumbler and get into that one. And, and the problem is, if they would just stay where they're at and allow the Lord to work, God's going to do a work in them. I hope that nobody is deceived here, but spiritual growth and spiritual fruit doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens when you're interacting with the body of Christ. Uh, Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. I don't know about you, but I see the day approaching. And so scriptures tells me it's more important for us to be together, encouraging one another, uh, meeting each other's needs, supporting one another. It's so important. And so there's one place to worship the Lord. And so one place, and it's obviously it's not this building, but it's the body of Christ. Moving on here to verse 10. And whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood... I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, no one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. Whatever man of, of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. For it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, You shall not eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what died naturally or what was torn by beasts, whether he is a native of your own country or a stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his body, then he shall bear his guilt." And so here now we have the prohibition against uh, eating blood. And notice in verse 10, what's, what's, the, what's the punishment? God says, I'll set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. That sounds so severe. Why such a severe punishment for eating blood? Well, what God is trying to get across to his people, see, all life is created by God. All life. All life is sustained by God. All life belongs to God. And the blood of an animal or person represents their life. There's three times it's mentioned in verse 11, verse 14, and another place in verse 14. The life of the flesh is in the blood. It's mentioned over and over and over again. By the way, it's interesting when you read through scriptures, but... It wasn't until 1616, a guy by the name of William Harvey, he discovered what the scriptures had already declared about blood, uh, the importance of blood to human and animal life. He discovered that blood carries water and nourishment to every cell in the body. It maintains the body's temperature. It removes waste from the body's cells, and it carries oxygen from the lungs to all the body's cells. So literally, blood is vital to the life of a, of, a, of, a, of a person or an animal. Well, because of sin, the Bible says that there's the necessity of death, right? The wages of sin is death. And blood had to be shed to make atonement for sin. 
In fact, Hebrews 9.22, according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And so God in his mercy, he provided a substitution, a substitutionary death of an innocent animal for a guilty person in the old covenant. There, verse 11, I have given it to you upon the altar, speaking of the blood, to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And so because of the importance and value of that atonement for sin, blood was supposed to be treated reverently. It was to be, it was to be treated in, a, in an honorable way. So an animal that was slaughtered for food was to have its blood properly drained. An animal that died out in the field, its blood was to be covered over with dirt. Why? So as not to allow it to be trodden underfoot, to treat it like it was really of no value. And so if a man came across an animal that had died naturally or was slain in the field, and its blood had not been properly drained or disposed of, uh, he could still eat the meat of the animal, except he'd be ceremonially unclean <coughs> until evening, and he would have to ceremonially wash himself. But there it says... If he has no regard, in other words, he just kind of blows that off and, and doesn't, he doesn't care about his ceremonial on cleaning and he doesn't care about his washing, you know, ceremonially, then he's morally guilty because he's treated it like it's nothing. And he would be cut off for the Lord, from the Lord, excuse me. And so here in chapter 17 or 18 or 17, I guess it is. <laughs> the Lord is teaching them there's one place for bringing your sacrifice. And now in this section, God's also saying, teaching them that there's one uh, to honor the blood of Jesus Christ. Of course, you know, the animals, we don't an sacrifice animals anymore. We're into the new covenant. The new covenant, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God that was shed for the sins of the world. And so he's teaching them, he's preparing them uh, to treat Christ's blood as precious. So you have, uh, Peter says this, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish or without spot. And so those who disregard the cross of Christ, and those are the people that say, hey, there's many paths to heaven, they're insulting the Father um, who sent his only begotten son. I mean, he gave his only son to die on the cross for your and my sins. And so for someone to say, hey, uh, that's just one of many ways. They're treating the blood of Christ like it's common, like it's no big deal. Those who think that Christ's sacrifice is insufficient, what am I talking about? Those are those people that are trying to earn their own salvation through their own righteousness or through works or through legalism. It's like Jesus' blood, it's not enough. You also got to do this or you got to do that. They're treating Christ's blood as if it's nothing special. And there's a special, uh, there's, a, there's a warning in Hebrews 10 about it. Verse 29 says, Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy uh, who was, uh, he, let me read it over again. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? The precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so there's one atonement for sin, and it's the blood of Christ. We're going to move into chapter 18 now. 
Verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan where I am bringing you, you shall not do. Nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. He says, don't do according to the, the way of the land of Egypt where you dwelt. Don't do those things. Now, Egyptian culture, it was very advanced technologically for its day. And, and of all the nations, they were probably one of the most advanced of the cultures. And yet, they were a very immoral culture. And so the Lord God's saying, don't do the things that you saw or experienced from your time in Egypt. And then he says, and according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. So they came from Egypt. They're going into Canaan. Don't do what you're going to see them do all around you. Don't walk in their ordinances. See, while Egyptian culture was perhaps the most advanced technologically uh, and yet immoral, the Canaanite culture without rival was the most base immorally uh, of the nations of their, of their day. God says, don't do according to their doings, which is their deeds or their actions, or their activities, nor walk in their ordinances. Their ordinances. What's an ordinance? It's, it's a statute. It's a rule or a law. Uh, don't, don't do according to how they view how life should be lived. Don't uh, do according to their rules for living. Do not submit to the authority of the Canaanite culture. That's God's word to us, too. Don't submit to the, the culture around you. We have one authority, one authority. And who's that? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he says that in chapter 18, he says, I am the Lord your God. That's three times in chapter 18. When we get to chapter 19, it occurs seven times in chapter 19. And throughout the whole Testament, Old Testament, it occurs 42 times. I am the Lord your God. In other words, God's saying, I am your authority for life. He says, you shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. See, God's statutes and God's ordinances regarding, and we're going to be talking about sexual conduct here in chapter 18, his ordinances... His plan is for our good. God's not a killjoy. When I was growing up, I thought, you know, maybe, you know, everybody else is having all the fun, you know, but that's not true. It's not true. Following God, having God's authority in your life, it's for our good. Not submitting to God's authority in our lives causes physical harm. Um, go to the next slide, if you would. I'm not going to read through all the statistics, but this STD, sexually transmitted disease, they are on the rise in our nation. And you can see some of the, I got that from the uh, Center for Disease Control, and, uh, and then some other uh, uh, statistics having to deal with HIV. It's, it's, it's not following God's law causes physical harm, as well as emotional and spiritual harm as well. And so here's the statutes regarding sexual conduct. Verse 6, 
None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. The nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. The nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father, or the daughter of your mother, whether born at home or elsewhere, their nakedness you shall not uncover. Verse 10, the nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, their nakedness you shall not uncover, for theirs is your own nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, begotten by your father, she is your sister, you shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister, she is your near kin to your father. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is near kin to your mother. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. You shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter, nor shall you take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are near of kin to her. It is wickedness. Nor shall you take a woman as a rival to her sister to uncover her nakedness while the other is alive. Why would God give all these commands? Because the Canaanite culture, that was their culture. To uncover someone's nakedness, you think right away of nudity, but it's much more than nudity. The context of these verses I just read, it's forbidden incestuous sexual relations with someone who is near kin to you. This is, by the way, it's not a fun chapter to go through, but <laughs> we're here. Um, it's blood relatives, someone who's, or someone who's close through marriage. This was the cultural norm of the Canaanites. You know, so much of this that we just read, I mean, it's like, it's gross, right? You read and you go, man, oh, I couldn't imagine that and stuff. And yet in our culture today, it's becoming more, things that were taboo, it's not only becoming more permitted, but it's becoming celebrated in our, in our culture. Verse 19, also you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness as long as she is in her customary impurity. This is talking about their menstrual cycles. Verse 20, moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor, neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. And verse 21, and you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Moloch, nor shall you profane the name of your, of your God, I am the Lord. Moloch, what is Moloch? Well, that was one of the Canaanite deities. What The worship of Moloch, basically they had this bronze, this, this, this metal, uh, idol and it was heated up it was superheated to the point where the the, uh, the 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 actual casting was glowing hot and then they would take a, a child a baby they would be banging their drums and 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 having this you know the chants or whatever they were doing and they would lay this baby in the arms of this molten metal idol and it would it would literally kill the baby and they would beat the drums to hide the drown out the, the the screams of this little child that's what the bible talks about when it talks about passing through the fire it's talking about that don't pass your children through the fire what it was was the worship of convenience you know it's interesting we have all these the sexual immorality that we're reading about and and then in here he says and don't worship molech why well, because any unwanted pregnancies from all this activity, it was convenient. It was just it's an unwanted pregnancy. It just destroy the baby. 
you know, abortion is, I don't see much difference between what takes place today with abortion. Verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. Speaking about homosexuality. You know, there's a lot of people today that say that's archaic. That commandment is no longer applicable. That was the Old Testament. Uh, you know, after all, you think about it, and we're going to be talking about that uh, later on in Leviticus. No one's going to go to hell for eating shellfish, right? That was one of the forbidden things in, in Leviticus. You know, you weren't to eat shellfish. Um, no one's going to go to hell for eating shellfish. Later on, we're going to read about not being able to wear clothing of dissimilar materials. In other words, like wool and leather. It was, you know, you weren't supposed to do that. Uh, and, and I've heard people say, hey, okay, Leviticus says that about homosexuality, but it also says, you know, you can't eat shellfish. You can eat shellfish now. I mean, you can wear, you know, rayon and leather or whatever. You know, what's the big deal? I don't know if you maybe you've heard that argument before. I've heard that argument before. Listen, wearing clothing of dissimilar materials or dietary violations in the Old Testament, it wasn't a capital offense. But sexual immorality and homosexuality, it, those were capital offenses. Is it archaic? Did it only apply to the children of Israel under the old covenant? When we get to the book of Acts, you know, there's all these Gentiles getting saved. And, and the question is raised, well, you know, what about all the laws in the Old Testament? Do these Gentiles, do they need to follow all these rules and laws too? And so they had a council. They gathered together and talked about it. And James, the Lord's brother, says this in, in Acts chapter 15, verse 19. He says, Therefore I judge we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. All those other things, hey, we're not going to lay that trip on the Gentiles. But they need to refrain from sexual immorality. Because it's sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul said this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. It, it, it's not archaic. It's God's word. But you know what? We need to be careful how we condemn and judge others. You know, those, those dirty, rotten people, you know, that group of people. Uh, look, the scriptures, it condemns them. But look what it also condemns. <laughs> Thieves. Have you ever taken something that doesn't belong to you? Have you ever, you know fudged your time card a little bit or, or maybe maybe like you know I didn't really report that on my taxes this year that's stealing that, that's that's being a thief covetousness man, I really want what that person has I, I, man I deserve what they have it really bugs me that they get that you know or, or I really want this thing you know we're just whatever it is a new car or whatever we can covet too or maybe, you know, I, I, yeah, I drink once in a while, and yeah, a little, every once in a while I drink a little too much, and a little tipsy and stuff. Man, these things are condemned too. So we have to be really careful about how we judge and condemn others. Verse 23, nor shall you mate with any animal to defile yourself with it. 
nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is perversion. The word perversion, by the way, in the King James Version is confusion. And what it means is it's a violation of nature or of divine order. That's what it means. That's why New King James translates as perversion. Going after strange flesh would be another way to describe that. Verse 24, do not defile yourselves with any of these things. For by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. For all these abominations the men of the land have done who were before you, and thus the land is defiled. Lest the land vomit you also, uh, you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. For whoever commits any of these abominations, the person who commits them shall be cut off from among their people. Therefore you shall keep my ordinance, so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs which were committed before you, and that you do not defile yourselves by them. I am the Lord your God. The land is even defiled by sexual immorality. Nations are defiled. In the Bible, the Lord talks about vomiting out the inhabitants of the land. You know, the Canaanites, so the children of Israel, they were in Egypt for 400 years. And God had told Abraham, hey, your descendants, they're going to be in a foreign land for 400 years um, until, uh, I, I don't know the words, until the, uh, the time of the Gentile or the Canaanites is complete. I, Amorite, that's what it was. Um, what it's referring to is the 400 years that the Canaanites, there's this totally base immoral culture sacrificing their children, and then God basically vomited them out of the land and told the children of Israel, I'm, putting, I'm giving you this land. And so when we get to the book of Joshua, and there's all these battles, and God's telling them to wipe out the inhabitants of Canaan, a lot of people go, man, how can a loving God do that? Man, this is a God that put up with 400 years of child sacrifice and the worst kind of immorality that was imaginable. I was just reading this week an article. Uh, there's a professor at a university down in Austin, Texas, and he wrote a paper defending sexual relationships between adult men and young boys. And he was actually saying it was good for the boys and stuff. He was writing this article. And we go, man, I, I, it just, my stomach turns when I read that. But you know, before the Roman Empire collapsed, many of the emperors, many of the Caesars, they had young males uh, for immoral purposes that they kept around them. I do believe the Lord's coming back soon. But I think should the Lord tarry, we're going to start seeing more and more things that were never acceptable socially before, but it's going to become more and more mainstream in our culture. Just this week, you may have heard about it, but the Methodist denomination, they're, going to, they're anticipating a church split over the issue of homosexuality in, in, in the church. They had, an art, they had an interview with uh, one of the pastors of the, one of the Methodist churches here in town. I don't know if you saw it or not, but uh, 
this lady who's the pastor of this church, they were asking her about that split, and she goes, you know, I, basically, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but she said, I'm more concerned about all the wars that are going on and the destruction of creation than, than this stuff. And what's interesting, my wife turned to me and she said, you know, she's so concerned about the destruction of creation. Of course, she's talking about climate change. I mean, that's, that's you know, we I understand what she is saying. But like my wife is saying, in reality, this sexual immorality, that's destroying God's creation too. And that's so true. One of the comments that this lady made, she says, I want people to know that they're safe here. She's talking about our church, that they're safe. And you have to say, well, safe from what? And again, I know what she was referring to. She wants people to feel safe, you know, that people are, uh, you know, they're not condemning their lifestyle. But what's safe about that? About allowing someone to continue on with something that without repentance is going to lead to eternal destruction. Again, I know what she meant. She meant she wanted people to feel welcomed and not condemned. This is what I got out of this whole message here, was thinking about our church. Again, the culture is, is going off to that same direction as the Canaanites. And here we are, Christians, and, and we're the fundamentals because we believe what the Bible actually says, literally. And so there's going to be a clash, and you've probably, maybe you've already had experienced that in your own interactions with family members or coworkers or whatever. It's going to be coming more and more to the point where there's going to be two extremes. And it's a fine line that you and I are to walk in this day. See, we need to be lovingly speaking the truth to people. But at the same time, we have to recognize that there's not one sin that's greater than the others. All, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us deserve eternal destruction. It's only by the grace of God that we're saved. And so we need to recognize that. All of us are saved by that atoning blood of Jesus Christ, nobody else. We have a culture that wants to silence us. You know, homosexuality and all that other sexual immorality that we're, we were reading about, it was rampant in Paul's day. And I think about that. It's not a new phenomenon. You might say, you know, things are sure gotten bad now. It's, I, I can't believe what's going on. And, I, you know, I read articles and I, I go, man, I, I, here we go. It's, it's, it's happening. But think about this. Homosexuality, I'm just picking on the one thing, but homosexuality was rampant in Paul's day, and yet the church was growing. The church was growing. There's something taking place there. And so lives were being changed. I want to read this 1 Corinthians. I read it to you earlier, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. There we go. Verse 11, and Paul says this, and such were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That speaks volumes to me. You know, we can be really condemning, we can be really, you know, hey, we're gonna, you know, we can, or we can, you know, lovingly be truthful with people, but, but we don't wanna turn people away. We don't wanna drive people away by our attitudes. And so, you know, 
some of us look at the the cap the, or the the cup the cultural cup and say it's half empty and and but i look at this and go yeah but in paul's day it was the same situation yet the church was growing and so what's the key what's the key so you know what I want to do here before I have the worship team come up? I want to just spend a few minutes and just pray. Pray for our church because I tell you what, the, what we're reading today, it's going to become a bigger and bigger issue. You know, it's going to get to the point where people are going to want to silence what I say you know, silence what you say. Uh, it, 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 there's a clash in our culture that's coming. And yet when I read about the church in Corinth, and Corinth was, was notorious for their lifestyle, the immoral lifestyle. To live like a Corinthian meant like you were really loose. And yet the church was growing there. Lives were being changed. And so I think it's possible here in our culture too, and I think it's possible here, even in the culture that we're facing that looks pretty dark, but there's hope because the Spirit of God's still present in this world and working in our lives. So let's, let's just pray.